My Bible is open to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews near the back of your New Testament. So take out your Bible and open it up there. If you've gone to Revelation, you've gone too far. It's kind of the next big book to the left of Revelation in your New Testament. So open up your Bibles or power them up if they're electronic and you have them with you today. I want to welcome everybody to week number four of our welcome initiative emphasis here at Hillcrest. If you're new to Hillcrest, we've been in a month-long emphasis where we are emphasizing really more than anything else what our real mission is. We're trying to mobilize our church to be prepared for the next 20 years of ministry life together, particularly from a facilities perspective, wanting to make sure that we're fresh, we're modern, we continued to extend our arms in every part of our welcome. I appreciated so much uh, uh, Tara's uh, testimony. Didn't you all appreciate that today? Wasn't that great? That's what we're talking about. And so we're very thankful. I'm telling you, you give me, give me 10 or 12 people like Susie Newman, and we will change the world with the gospel of Christ. Isn't that right? And so we are so very thankful for how all of us at Hillcrest exercise leadership and make a difference in terms of our welcome to people, not only here in our facilities, but as we work and as we play and as we engage our neighbors in the communities in which we live. Our community is growing and people are coming. And if we're not intentional about it, we'll just begin a slow coast downhill and we never want to do that. And so we want our future to always be, be onward and upward to higher uplands where we can best communicate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to as many people as we possibly can. So never forget, this campaign is more about people than it is about buildings or land or anything of the such. We want our church, I know I do and I'm sure you do too, to be stronger 20 years from now even than it is today. And so we are committed toward that end. Next Sunday, we land the plane uh, on this deal, and it will be Commitment Sunday here at Hillcrest. And so we very respectfully ask that those of you who should have already gotten a commitment card, bring these with you to church next week. This is when we're going to collect these and gather them together uh, next Sunday morning in both of our morning services. If you weren't here last week and you didn't get a campaign book, you can have some wonderful pictures of what we've been proposing, these 10 very important projects. These are available as you leave the door today, so you can pick one of these up. If you didn't get a commitment card, you can also pick one of these up as well. These are at the information centers, and so be sure to stop and pick one up on the way out the door today if you haven't gotten one already. And then everybody remember to bring those to church with you next Sunday morning as we wrap up this welcome initiative emphasis uh, and uh, mobilize our commitments together. These are necessary so that we know how to plan. We need to know what God's people are going to be committed to giving over the next three years. And let me remind you that what we're looking for across the about 800 sets of givers that we have at Hillcrest, we need an average three-year commitment of about $5,000, and that'll get us home toward the three-year need of $3.5 million to do these 10 projects that we have proposed uh, to you. And so if we get an average three-year gift, that's $1,650 a year for three years, totaling $5,000 across the board, not everybody can give that much. Some can give much more. And we need you to think sacrifice. We need you to be stretched. 
We need you to do what you can over and above the tithe. We don't want anybody to redirect what they're giving to the ministry budget of our church toward the welcome initiative. This is over and above that because if we get enough people robbing Peter to pay Paul, y'all know what I mean? Then we'll go into a budget crisis and that won't be good. So don't redirect. If you can only give one place, give to the ministry budget of your church. Uh, but we're asking everybody, look for a little bit more. Look for God to stretch you a little bit. And then uh, commit. And we need about an average commitment of $5,000 per giving unit at our church. Here's the good news this morning. We've already had about 90 of our leaders pre-submit their commitment cards. We already have over $601,000 already committed by just about 10% of the givers at our church. So 10% of the givers have already committed about 20% of the need. That's a pretty good start. Can I have an amen this morning? Put your hands together and let's praise the Lord. What we need for everybody else next Sunday as you come to church, prepare to come and be a part of this very important move. Uh, also, as you leave today, we want you to spend the week praying. So this is the last piece of literature that we're going to give you, and it's a seven-day prayer guide uh, that I've written myself. I put it together, and there's a prayer, a guided prayer devotion for every day this week, starting tomorrow and then concluding when you get up next Sunday morning. Everybody can pray for their church, and I hope you're doing that every day of your life, every year of your life because we are God's people living and ministering in challenging times. So pick up one of these prayer guides. Use it every day. We got enough for every person, not just every family, but every person can take one of these. And then we instruct you how you can pray for God to use you in these important days at Hillcrest. You know, the thing about projects like these is every one of them have one thing in common. They all involve a change of some kind. And most people are rooted in the present. We live in a sea of constant change, but we tend to not like that too much. Those of us that are parents don't like change. We want to keep our little kids in a bottle, don't we? But remember, somebody said one time, it kills you to see your kids grow up so fast, but it'd kill you a lot quicker if they didn't. That's right. I mean, God gives us kids to see them change and to see them develop and to see them grow. Oftentimes, we don't like change in the church. We don't like change in our community. We don't like change, period. But it's an inevitable part of life. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus said one time, the only thing constant is change. And that's right. It's the only thing that doesn't change is change itself. I was driving home on Thursday listening to the news on the radio, and to my surprise, the top business story of the day just last Thursday had to do with the Ford Motor Company. Many of y'all drive Fords. Ford has made a decision they're no longer going to manufacture cars in the United States anymore. And I heard that, and I thought, how can that be? Ford invented the mass assembly line. The mass production of automobiles in the United States is synonymous with Ford. And they're not going to make them anymore in the USA. It's all about trucks and SUVs. They are going to keep the Mustang. Can I have an amen this morning? 
They're still going to make the muscle car. That's it. Other than that, cars, no more for Ford. You know why? Because they're not profitable. They keep doing the same old things that are not profitable to them. They won't be around for very long. And they know that. So they, they're going to do what's best. Not for today, but they're going to do what's best for the future. And churches have to sometimes think that way as well. So we don't like change, and we know it. But can I give you a bit of good news today in one sense? Some things never change. And that's especially true in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that will come as a welcome relief to many of us who just wish the world would slow down, quit spinning so fast, and the incredible rate of change that goes along with it. And this is the point, I think, of the writer of the letter to the Hebrews as he brings this lengthy and often complicated letter to a conclusion. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse number one, let's see what God would have us to know today. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's say verse 8 out loud together, that last one. Ready? Together. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And aren't you thankful of that this morning? See, these, these are all things that we've read today that are constants in the community of faith. These are things beginning with that last statement that never change in the body of Christ from now until our Lord comes again. Let me summarize what we've read today in three general statements concerning things that never change for the people of God. First of all, our duty to love never changes. Our duty to love never changes. This is the first word of instruction out of the writer to the Hebrews as he begins to land the plane on this challenging letter. It's as simple as any command as there is in the Bible. Let brotherly love continue. And that phrase brotherly love is nothing but a transliteration. You pick up a Greek New Testament and that's what it says. Let Philadelphia continue. And you don't have to be a person from the great state of Pennsylvania to shout amen when the Bible says that. Philadelphia means what? Brotherly love. It's a city of brotherly love. And so literally the writer says, let it continue. It's a concept. It's not agape. It's from phileo, the other word for love that's used all over the Bible. And it's a word that implies affection, tenderness. There's a hint of compassion that's bound up in that very important and often used word in the Bible. And as it relates to the Christian life, you know as well as I do, we've said it a thousand times, nothing's more important than love. 
Paul calls it the most excellent way. It is the greatest of these, of all Christian virtues, nothing, faith, hope, uh, compassion, name it, none of them are more important than our duty to love others as Christ has loved us. Not long before he died, Jesus told his disciples there in the upper room in John 13, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. In other words, here's how people are going to look at you from the outside and know that you belong to me. It doesn't have anything to do with your building you gather in. It doesn't have anything to do with what's on the building you gather in. It doesn't have anything to do with the sign. It doesn't have anything to do with athletic facilities or ball fields. How are people going to look at you and know that you're different from them, that you belong to God, that your primary thrust in life is to magnify God, glorifying his name, enjoy him forever, living in fellowship and community with him? How will a lost world know that if you love one another? By this, all men will know your identity in Christ. Those were some of the last words of Jesus to his disciples. And this command represents among the last words of the anonymous writer to the Hebrews, to this suffering group of early Christians. He wants them to know their first calling wasn't to build great buildings or to build great budgets. You don't develop a Christian legacy by building things that eventually will crumble and fall or at the very least go out of date with time. The way you build a lasting legacy is by becoming like Christ, living and loving others in the family of faith and others in the world at large like Jesus Christ. Nothing's more important than that. And the author gives us really a couple of examples of how we're to love one another. I don't have time to go into both of them this morning. But notice one example of how we do that in verse 2. Do not neglect to show what? Say it out loud. Hospitality. Hospitality to whom? To strangers, those who aren't among you yet. That's what we've been talking about, folks, for the last, uh, I started to say the last 12 months. It seems like 12 months. But for the last 30 days about broadening our reach into our community by being our very best. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Welcome others as God in Christ has welcomed you. And why does he say that? Because you never know who you're showing hospitality to. By so doing, many have entertained angels without even knowing it. See, the idea here in the first century was to use your home as a home base of influence to others. Traveling was a risky business back in those days, right? And people had to travel on foot. And listen, they didn't have Super 8s, Motel 6s. They didn't have any of that mess. They had to stop and knock on doors. Can you put up a traveling passerby for the night? And boy, it's a different day that we live in today. I don't know that I'd do that in my house, um, but they surely did it back then. But the point is, I mean, within wisdom, be wise in terms of how you encounter strangers, but don't be afraid to encounter strangers. Rub shoulders with them. Love them. Figure out how you can be an influence in their lives. Say to them, I want you to know you're welcome here, man. I want to be a blessing to you. That's the way they did it back then. And they tended to be much better at that, and they're still much better at that in the Middle East today. You travel to the Middle East with us on one of our trips over there, and you'll find people are the nicest people in the world. 
Now, they, they're not like us religiously, but I'm telling you, they are super hospitable when it comes to being a blessing to other people. We're not so much like that. We go home today in the Western world that we live in today, close the door and pull up the drawbridge behind us. You know, we don't even knock on doors anymore. We don't, I don't want to bother, you know, I don't want to bother them. And they don't want you to bother them either. I mean, we know that. So it's just a different culture. And we understand the concerns. I remember one time back in the day, I was having this conversation. I had a Hillcrest family that was being really hospitable to Judy and I this week. Had us in their home and we were enjoying a wonderful meal together in table fellowship. And I was telling them about a story back when we lived in a parsonage, church-owned housing, right next to the church. And that was both a blessing and a curse at the same time. Because we did. We had a lot of transient people come by the house. We lived in a county seat town. The jail was only about a mile away from our church, the county jail. And so they'd get out of jail. They didn't have any, a lot of them didn't have people come pick them up. So they just started walking. And the first place they stopped was the First Baptist Church. And everybody knew where the preacher of the First Baptist Church lived because the brick matched the church right next door to it. That's where the pastor lived. Church did me a great favor. They put an ad in the Yellow Pages back when there was such a thing as the Yellow Pages, and it had First Baptist Church phone number, and then down underneath it, First Baptist Parsonage and the phone number. And the phone rang constantly from people I'd never heard of before. We were there. I was gone. I was out of town on a, at a meeting, and so Judy was there, and her mother and her grandmother from Nashville were staying there with her. We had two little kids running around the house, Judy went to take a shower one day, came out of the shower, walking down the hall, turban towel wrapped around the head, walked into the living room, and there are two transients sitting in our living room with her grandmother serving them coffee and pound cake. And Judy stops dead in her tracks with this turban. I wish I had a picture of that. I'd show to all of you today if I had a picture of it. And, you know, panic begins to set in. Don't know who these guys are. Don't know what they're up to. Don't know what's happened. Finally, she was able to minister to them a little bit and helped them out along the way and called the church and got a couple of guys to come over. And everything was great. And we, we helped those guys put them up for the night in a local motel. And then Judy had to sit down with her grandmother for about 15 minutes, you know. So it's a different day today, and, and we get that. But the value of doing this is that you never know who you're entertaining. The Bible says here those may have been angels. And we didn't know about it. You say, well, that could never happen. Well, why don't you ask Abraham if you don't believe that? You read the story of the book of Genesis about Abraham's minding his own business one day and saw three men coming at him. Goes into hyperdrive. He just knows, okay, we got guests coming. Let's kill a lamb. Let's get it together, honey. Throw on some food. We're going to show these guys a wonderful evening. And these guys show up when it's all said and done. One of them was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate state. Abraham knew it was the Lord. And anytime it's the Lord in a body, if it's Old Testament or new, it doesn't matter. That's Jesus, brothers and sisters. He's the only God with a body. And the other two were angels, three celestial beings. When they were walking toward him, he had no idea that. And yet he made a decision. He was going to love them because he had a duty to love them as he himself had been loved and chosen by God without regard to the merits of of his own life. So there may be more to, uh, to people than meet the eye 
And we always want to remember that as we minister the gospel in our Pensacola community. I said before when we were studying the letter of the fine layman, Jesus takes our love and hospitality to others personally. As you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it, finish the sentence. You have done it unto me. Whether it's providing water for their thirst, food for their hunger, shelter for their nakedness, clothing for their nakedness, whatever the case might be, we minister to Christ when we love and minister to others. Our duty to love never changes. Secondly, the Bible would teach us that our pursuit of holiness never changes. Our pursuit of holiness is something that is a constant until Christ comes again. Holiness is another theme that's mentioned often in Hebrews. We're told, for example, in Hebrews 12, 14, uh, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the author doesn't repeat that statement here in chapter 13, but in chapter 13, what he does is he gives us two living illustrations of the kind of holiness that we're to strive toward and pursue that he mentions back one chapter earlier. I call it the M&M twins, marriage and money. Your attitude toward marriage reveals a lot about your desire for holiness. Your attitude toward money reveals a lot about your desire to live with holiness. The first example of holiness has to do with marriage and sexual purity. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, pure, for God will what? Say it out loud. Judge. See, I just wanted you to say it so that you wouldn't get mad at me for saying it. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. That, that verse right there is a theology of marriage in a sentence. Marriage is to be two things, honorable and holy. And what is marriage? Isn't it amazing that a 21st century preacher has to give people a definition of marriage in the lifetimes and culture that we live in today? Marriage, very simple. It's the lifetime union between a man and a woman as a husband and a wife under the leadership of the Spirit of God. That's what marriage is. And it's been that way from the beginning. Anytime the marriage is talked about in the New Testament, whether it's by Christ or by the Apostle Paul or by the writer of the Hebrews, they typically will root what they're saying in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. They'll always go back to the very beginning. You know why? Because marriage was always God's idea. Not something that cavemen or cave dwellers thought up millennia ago. No, God was the one that invented marriage, and God was the one that invented sex. That's a good place for an amen, even in the house of the Lord this morning. And they always go right back to where it all began. God invented it, and marriage never changes. Oh, it changes in front of us. It's changed in the last couple of years. Redefined. But that doesn't mean God redefined it. Amen. That means a bunch of Jurists redefined it, but it never changes. It's eternal. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, masculine, feminine, and the two shall become what? One flesh. So marriage, and that's a physical illusion and a spiritual illusion. Man and woman, not identical beings, complementary beings, coming together 
in the sexual union for the purpose of reproducing godly children that bear the image of our Lord. The first command God gave the couple after they got married was what? Be fruitful and multiplied, fill the earth and subdue it. And that's part of the one flesh, physical aspect of one flesh, a reference to the sexual union between complementary beings created in the image of God. But then there's also a spiritual union. Jesus says they're no longer two, but one. In other words, when God looks at a couple who are joined together in this marriage union, he sees them in the same sense that he sees his relationship with you. Christ in me, I am in Christ. Christ never leaves me nor forsakes me. There is union with Christ for the follower of Jesus Christ. I'm one, we are one in solidarity. And the same is true with a husband and a wife. No longer two, but one, the Bible says. And that's why how we handle sex within the context of marriage is very important to God. Because what that means is, based on the kind of union that the marriage relationship is, fidelity to becoming one, sex outside of the marriage relationship is out of bounds when it comes to God, either before marriage. Man, there's so much I could say about this, and I don't have time to do it. No sex before marriage. There's there's nothing mysterious about that. Sex is reserved for the marriage partner. No sex with someone else after your marriage. That's adultery, the Bible says. And God is so serious about it that he says to do it, places you outside the boundaries of the will of God in such a way that God's not going to be able to bless your life. Instead, the opposite happens. God will what? I prefer you to say it. God will what? Judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. See, the reason that's true is marriage is a picture of the gospel, Christ and his church. The church is the bride of Christ. And as the church and Christ are one in union with each other, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in the same way, the church responds to Christ by serving the Lord and glorifying his great name. This is the way husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And so that's what the author means by keeping the marriage bed pure, reserved for your spouse. And that never changes. If you want to gauge the health of the local church, one way to do it, look at the state of marriage within the life of that church. So marriage is one demonstration of our commitment to holiness as we walk with the Lord. The second is how we handle money. And uh, this is where we plow close to the corn this morning. But again, the author is very clear here, and he's writing to people who are struggling financially, by the way. They're under tremendous persecution, many of them economically because of their faith. The whole point of the letter to the Hebrews is to keep people walking forward with faithfulness, fidelity, and commitment when many of them coming out of a Jewish background were beginning to wonder because it's so uh, difficult, because the pressures are so great to live for Jesus Christ, maybe it's just better that we go back to Judaism. And the author spends 13 chapters saying, what are you going to go back to? 
All that stuff's been fulfilled in Jesus. It's basically fulfilled its purpose and has no future significance because Christ has fulfilled it all. And so they're struggling, and part of the area of their struggle is financial because many of them were losing their income. There's a price for following Jesus Christ in a culture that was not strongly supportive of that. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. That doesn't say keep your life free from money because we'd be in a mess if that were the case. But it says keep your life free from what? Say it out loud. The love of money. And be what? Be content with what you have. See, that's the key. How do I keep my life free from the love of money? Learn the principle of contentment. And if you don't do it, you'll always bow down before an idol of dollars. The only way to do it is to just be satisfied with what the Lord has blessed you with. And I keep playing the comparison game. Let me tell you what. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. The comparison game can never be won. It can never be won. The only, the only two things that can result when you compare your life with others is either pride because you have more than somebody else or envy because you don't have as much as someone else, neither of which is pleasing to God. So we need to learn to quit comparing ourselves, our lot in life, with other people. And as the Bible says, not only here, but in many other places in the Bible, be content with what you have. And again, this is really hard in Western cultures. Hospitality has become difficult in Western cultures like ours. Contentment has become difficult in Western cultures like ours. We, most of us tend to really struggle with this because we are trained from the very beginning about the American way. There is a thirst and a hunger that's created by every print ad that we see, every commercial that we watch. Some five to 600,000 commercials are seen by children by the time they get 18 years old. And all of them drill in one after the other after the other. You're a loser if you don't drive this. You're a loser if you can't afford a hamburger over here when it's a fraction of the cost over there. You know what I'm saying? And all of these ads made to look so good that you can't hardly stand it, and we buy into that, and then we all of a sudden are head over heels and have overextended ourselves. And we put ourselves, many of us in the house of God, if I can dare be so bold to say it, we've put ourselves in a position because we've bought into that lie that we can't even afford to be generous with the Lord even if we wanted to. I've had so many people. And let me just say, if God's people across churches all over America, we were just faithful with the tithe, just faithful to tithe, we would never have to do another extra capital campaign like ever, ever. We'd have more than enough, and I would leave y'all alone. But not everybody tithes. That's the problem. And I've had so many people through the years, if the walls of my study could speak, Pastor, I just can't afford to do it. And I'll look out on the parking lot. You know what the average car payment in America today is? $503 a month. And there are a lot of people, you know why you can't afford to tithe? Because you're driving the tithe. You're driving the tithe. You don't have to drive that thing. See, there's always a way. God is never going to lead us to do something that we are not capable of doing. 
He wouldn't say over and over again, be generous, share. I mean, just look, uh, for example, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Then go down to verse 16. We didn't read this a moment ago. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. He's writing to poor people, poor folk, not rich folk, not Americans, poor Middle Easterners. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such what? Sacrifices are pleasing to God. The late Oklahoma philosopher Will Rogers wrote in the newspaper one time that it was amazing to him why so many people who were raised and living in the country were leaving the country to move to the city so that they could make enough money to one day move back to the country when it was all over. Think about that for a minute. Why didn't they just stay in the country to begin with? You know what I mean? Because they weren't content with simplicity. Now, these Christians here were really struggling. And they often knew that the only way for them to learn how to do this in really tough times, to share sacrificially, was to understand the significance of the presence of Jesus Christ. When people aren't generous, it's usually for one of two reasons. They're not generous, particularly when it comes to giving to God, one of two things come into play. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Fear or greed. It's always one of those two things that keep people from being generous every time. We either don't trust God or we love something else more than we love God. Whenever you've got somebody that refuses to live with an open hand, it's always because of that. For those who fear, who don't live generously because they're afraid of what might happen if they're open-handed about giving their money away, the author says here in verse 5, he gives them a reason. For he has said, I will never what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, this, this author to the Hebrews is a preacher. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not what? Fear what can man do to me. In other words, I'm not, not, I'm not gonna let fear of the unknown dictate whether or not I'm going to choose to live obediently to Jesus Christ. I'm gonna trust God because he really did say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, either we believe that or we don't. And there's no place to lay faith on the line quite so much than when it comes to your pocketbook. It's often been said that the most sensitive nerve in the body is the one that connects the heart with the wallet. Amen. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But you don't have to be afraid. And then you have to take an inventory. What do I really love the most in life? And those who are not generous, those who live close-fisted rather than open-handed, tend to prove by the way that they live that they love things more than they love the Lord. See, God says, the one who honors me, I will honor. And if you'll be faithful and you'll do right by God with your little bit, he'll make it go farther than you ever dreamed imagined. I could write a book with the stories of how God has provided for me 
because I've been faithful. There's never been a time in my life, in my adult life, that I've not tithed. I was taught to do it by my mother. I've always done it. She held me accountable when I was a teenager. My first jobs, I remember I came home one time, I'd made $183 over two weeks. 183 bucks, that won't go very far today. And mother looked at me and she said, isn't that amazing, $18 of that's what you get to give to God. And I looked at her and I didn't even want to, I wanted to just plug up my ears. Then she looked at me and she said, you know what I think y'all do, <clears throat> not 18, round it up, just give the whole $20 bill to the Lord. Because if you honor the Lord, God will always honor you. I could write a book about the last 40 years of my life and how God has been true to that. The one who honors me, I will honor. Look at Psalm 37, 16. Better is the little that the righteous man has than the abundance of the wicked. Do you all really believe it's impossible to outgive the Lord? I believe it with all my heart. He's proven that time and time again. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this, God says. The only time God says put him to the test has to do with your money. Test me in this and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour into your life such a blessing that you are not able to even contain it. Some things never change. Our duty to love never changes. Our pursuit of holiness never changes. But most importantly, and thank God, our Lord himself never changes. This is not only one of the most important statements in Hebrews, it's one of the most important statements in the Bible, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Isn't that great? Theologians call that the immutability of Christ. Christ is immutable. In other words, he never changes. The writer to the Revelation, John, says he is the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Never forget that. The earthly Jesus who died and rose again yesterday is the heavenly Jesus today seated in power and authority at the right hand of God living to make intercession for us is the conquering Jesus who is coming again one day tomorrow. And when the conquering Jesus, who at one time was the heavenly Jesus, who before that was the earthly Jesus, who before that was the eternal Christ, one day comes again, bringing all of the saints who have died and gone before with him to establish his kingdom world without end, to him and him alone is the kingdom and the honor and the glory. What? Forever and ever and when he comes he will establish that throne and we shall reign with him throughout all of the rest of eternity and that's why we ought to be the happiest people on the planet because the savior who died for us yesterday intercedes for us today and is one day coming back to receive us unto himself that where he is there forever we will be also. Have you ever wondered 
If our Christian ancestors from 2,000 years ago could somehow get in a time machine like they do on Star Trek and land here in the United States and observe the population, do you think they would be able to recognize us as their brothers and sisters in Christ? They wouldn't be able to recognize us by our dress because all that's changed over 2,000 years, hadn't it? They wouldn't be able to recognize us by our meeting places because all that's changed over the last 2,000 years. They wouldn't be able to recognize us by the homes that we live in because all that has changed over 2,000 years. They wouldn't be able to recognize us by the way we do business with one another, the way we carry out commerce, the way we live our lives, the things that we do in our leisure time, because all of that has changed over 2,000 years. And yet I'd like to think they'd still be able to say, you know what, there goes one of our family. There he goes, there she goes. You know why? You know how they'd be able to do that? They'd be able to tell us because of how we love one another, because of how we treat one another, because of how we show hospitality to one another, They'd be able to look at our marriages and say, yep, they do it the way the Lord told them to do it. They'd be able to look at how we handle our money and what are our priorities in spending and giving and receiving. They'd be able to look at all of that stuff. But most importantly, they'd look at how we worshiped. They'd look at how we handle the word. They'd look at how we handle the mission. And they would be able to tell that we are one of them by our commitment not to things that crumble and fall and that eventually will change with the passing fads of time, but they would be able to tell that we are one in Jesus by the way we look like Him. Because in this world, some things never change. Our Lord never changes, and because He never changes, the way we live and serve should never change either. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen. amen.